John. We've been studying this letter that John wrote to the church in Ephesus in order for him to encourage these people who had experienced spiritual highs. They had been to the mountaintop. They had experienced not only great joy in their fellowship with God, but tremendous fruit as well. And they had experienced some lows, doubts, frustrations, concerns. And it's at that stage that John is writing to them. John was aware that some had left the church. Some false teachers had come in and confused some of the believers. And those who remained were still stinging, still hurting. It's a great reminder to all of us that all of us in this Christian life have times that are high and times that are low. We have times that we are hungry. We have times where we have doubts. John writes this letter to help us to understand the essence of Christianity and how we may be strengthened in it. And it's for that reason we have been studying this for since the beginning of this year. This morning we come to chapter 4. We'll be looking at the first six verses as we hear what John has to say to us and giving practical instruction on how we can continually be strengthened in our faith. But let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking that he would be present and speak to us. But Father, as we gather this morning and we commit this time of our worship to the word, I pray that your hand would be upon it, your voice would be heard, that we would recognize what you had from us. But more than that, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see, our minds to understand, and our hearts to receive. For only as by your Spirit you do this does the Word do the work that it's intended to do. Use your word to transform us to be more like Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. But this we know, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his word. P.T. Barnum is famously quoted as having once said, there's a sucker born every minute. Now, historians and friends of Barnum said that was something that he would never have said that was out of character for him. He would have been more likely to say there is a customer 
born every minute, and that actually the sucker statement was probably made by somebody that was a little jealous or critical of Barnum's success and seeing people going into whatever Barnum's latest display and latest show was, his oddities and his curiosities that drew people in. He looked at all the people going in and just reminded and quipped, there's a sucker born every minute, but apparently it wasn't Barnum who said it. It doesn't really matter who said there's a sucker born every minute. If you look at the newspaper, we realize it's true. Realized this week, uh, as I was looking at the newspaper one day, I, was, I saw the TV pitchman Kevin Trudeau, who's made a career out of hawking unconventional, unworking, unethical, and all sorts of things, has been sentenced to 10 years in jail for committing fraud and violating a court order of to cease and desist. The court had decided long ago that his medical treatments to clear out your colon were not only ineffective, but probably not very good and not based on anything medical whatsoever. His radical diet of 500 calories a day to lose weight, while it probably does produce a loss of weight for a time, is apparently not particularly healthy. And all sorts of products that he has been selling for the past 25, 30 years, making a great fortune for himself, uh, they didn't work. He was they were sold not based in facts, and some of them were not healthy. So some time ago, the courts had looked at that and said, look, you need to stop making any advertisements. They can't keep him from making any products, but he cannot go on and make the same claims. But apparently there's enough suckers out there that were buying his products that he was willing to reject what the court order had said and continue to sell them until now he's finally been sentenced to spend the next 10 years in jail. I don't know whether Kevin Trudeau is a sucker, but anyone who apparently has bought his products has ended up feeling like one. It's not only monetary suckers. Some are relational suckers. Those of you who are sports fans, and maybe some who are not sports fans, may remember a story that was uh, being told ad nauseum at this time last year. It began around in December. The story began to unfold when uh, a guy who was a linebacker, Manti Teo, was a linebacker for the University of Notre Dame, and they were preparing for the national championship game. And as the weeks were leading up to the game, Teal, who was an All-American, a couple of year All-American, was a certain first-round draft choice. His grandmother, who he was very close to, had died. And then three days after his grandmother died, only days before the national championship game, his longtime girlfriend, who he had been in a relationship with, a committed relationship for three years, also died. But her last wishes is that he play in the national championship game anyway. So America's hearts went out to Teal and the fact that he had suffered such great loss and was still committed to playing in this game, even with his heartbrokenness. And because the story was so unusual and so romantic, the newspapers began to investigate uh, more, wanted to know more. They wanted to hear more about this relationship, only to find out that Teal's girlfriend of three years never actually existed. That was news not only to America, but that was news to Manti Teow as well. Somehow, he had been in a three-year relationship with somebody who didn't ever exist. And he only finds this out after the newspapers begin. It had begun as a simple hoax. Some friends, who I guess were then became former friends, not particularly good friends, thought it would be funny to set him up with a date online. And they hit it off so well, he bought in hook, line, and sinker so well, they just didn't have the heart to stop. Now, they uh, thought that it was funny, and they continued the relationship, and they paid someone to continually respond 
And for three years, this guy was involved in a relationship, speaking with this person online and occasionally by phone, never knowing that the person he was talking to was a complete farce, didn't actually exist. He, tragic as it is, I would have to call a relational sucker. I mean, call, if you're in love with somebody who doesn't exist, you're probably a sucker. Anyway, that's just, I might be judgmental, that's just my two cents on it. If, you, if you're in that relationship, you probably want to go to camper for counseling. But anyway, that's, um, but, uh, it's not difficult to realize there are suckers, and most of us at one time or another have probably felt like suckers too. But the thing that's really tragic is not only are there suckers in life, but there are also spiritual suckers. People who listen and buy in and are deceived simply because people are speaking and using the name of God, or talking about things that are positive, and people assume that it's helpful, beneficial, healthy. John here in this particular text is reminding us that that is just not true. And in order to prevent us from being spiritual suckers, John says in the very beginning of this passage, Beloved, don't believe every spirit or don't believe everyone who comes declaring that they are speaking for God, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And the reason is because there are many false prophets who have gone out into this world. In other words, there are false prophets, people who are declaring what they, uh, declaring things about God all around us, but they are not speaking for God in what they are speaking. They're not only untruths, but sometimes unhealthy for us spiritually. And John, it's the reason that John says we need to test the spirits is because not everyone speaking for God is actually from God. And it's vitally important that we understand that. Now, in John's context, that the historical problem that they were dealing with at his time was uh, a, a philosophy known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism, from the Greek word uh, gnosis, meaning truth. And so what the people that embraced this philosophy were speaking, was saying, you need to understand the deeper truth, have deeper knowledge of the reality that is deep within you. And essentially, the Gnostics would, who would, would go around preaching and speaking uh, and telling people that they had the key to unlock the potential that was buried deep within you. You just need to understand certain principles, that anything that was physical was evil, but anything that was spiritual, that was good. And so they had the deep secrets. They had the deep knowledge that if you would just learn from them, you could unlock that potential and let the God who is in you out, and you would be able to experience all that you had hoped to possibly experience. And it's to people like that that John is writing to the believers and saying, watch out for those people. They'd already seduced some within the church. It had become very popular and it had infiltrated a number of churches. And John is saying, because of people that are teaching like that, don't believe everyone that is teaching. Just because they say they're speaking for God, just because they use God's name, just because they mention Jesus Christ, does not mean that they are from God. You need to test the spirits. One commentator actually made a, an important, I, I think a very helpful insight, and he says this, it's significant that this warning comes in the midst of John's discourse about love. 
because false spirits tend to make a great deal about the subject of love. Every cult, every deviant group, every false movement makes its appeal in the name of love. In other words, these people that are claiming to be from God, using God's name, declaring Jesus' name, they just think that you need a little love. They only are telling you the things that they tell you because of love. They're willing to get backlash from people who are a little too uptight, people like me, because they love you, and they want what's best for you. And everyone needs a little love. And that was, that's the whole motive. They talk about love. They motivate, they're motivated by what they call love. John, with the commentators pointing out, is speaking against these people and these deviant groups. Here in the midst when he's trying to describe, here's what love is. He's already described. We know love because we know Christ. We know what love is because Christ Jesus came into the world and laid his life down for us. And here's how we express love. We love our brothers by laying our lives down for them. John has already defined, illustrated, shown us what love from God looks like. It comes in the person of Christ. We receive it, and then we lay our lives down for others as well. And now he's still continuing to talk about love, and he's saying, these people who use the word, throw the word word love around, they don't know what they're talking about. They're using it to get you to buy in to the garbage that they're trying to sell. And the reason it's pertinent for us to understand is because the Gnostics, well, we don't use the word anymore, people who were the false teachers, false prophets, the spirit of the Antichrist that were present in John's time are prevalent all around us as well. You find them every time you turn on the Christian TV stations. You find them every time you walk into the bookstore. And I don't mean just Barnes & Noble, I mean Lifeway. They're front and center, their books are are bestsellers because they tell people what they want to hear and they give you a bunch of best cotton candy, but they give you garbage. I made it through the first service without cussing. I will try to do the same the second. (laughs) This is an issue that to me, it gets me a little fired up because it is so important. And because in our culture, the prevalence of these false teachers is so great that I really believe that the true gospel has been buried and is considered to be something counterfeit and insufficient because other people are are teaching trash. And Christians and even conservative churches are buying into it. People are dying, and the church is declining because it's been watered down by people who are more committed to seeing how many numbers can we get than whether we can declare Christ and him crucified. And John says, look, these people, they're already here. And it's important for you and me to realize that popular and having a TV show does not equal truth. Being on the bestsellers list does not equal truth. And John says that this is not just a matter of getting some things wrong. This is a spiritual issue. What John says in in this passage is that it's not just a matter of the intellect, that we differ in doctrine. He says it's a spiritual issue. What he says in this passage is behind every false teaching, There is a spirit, a spirit of antichrist, the spirit of error, which is the spirit of antichrist. And so the people that are proclaiming a gospel that is no gospel at all, a different gospel, it's not just a matter of they're wrong, but they're offering self-help. They are teaching things that will lead us away from trusting in Christ, that will actually diminish our faith in what he has done for us. Their intent is to build up our faith in ourselves rather than in God, rather than in Jesus Christ. And John says, you need to watch out because this is a serious issue of spiritual issue. And we, as a people, 
need to realize, just as we would not allow somebody to perform surgery on us because they spent a night in Holiday Inn Express, we do not buy books and listen to the teachings of people just because they're on the bestsellers list or because a lot of other people are doing it. John is passionate, and, once, and it's important that we understand not everybody that says they are from God is from God. John gives us two tests. And these are tests that need to be applied universally. Not only to be applied to the people that you see on TV, not only to be applied to the people that are in the bookstores, but it needs to be applied to anybody that speaks in this pulpit here. And I'll be the most responsible camper, Ben, Rob, doesn't really matter, uh, uh, Ken, whoever is preaching here, we need to be held by these tests. The first test is, we'll call it the Christ test. Question is, what do they say about Jesus Christ? That's how we determine. We listen to what they're saying about Jesus Christ. During the time that John was speaking, the Gnostic teaching, interestingly enough, questioned that Jesus had a body. John says, anyone who declares that Christ, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Anyone who denies that is not of. And it's interesting, in their day, the Gnostic teachers really were building on upon a philosophy that they had had, again, that everything that was physical, that was made of matter, that was evil. Anything that was spiritual, uh, that was good. And so, in order, rather than building upon the revelation of God, the promise of the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is God who came in the flesh, they already had their foundation, and they just tried to plug Jesus into their religion. And their religion was built on certain things were good, certain things were bad, and so Jesus came, and if Jesus actually had a body, that made he would have had flesh. And if he had flesh, the flesh would have been evil. Jesus would have been evil. So they declared that Jesus did not have a body. He just looked like he had a body. It just appeared that he had a body. And some of the people, as they were writing in their day, they would say, did you ever actually see Jesus eat? I mean, it just looked like he was eating. He might have picked up the fork, but did you ever see him swallow anything? Jesus didn't, they would suggest he didn't eat. Others wrote and said that Jesus... Jesus, when he was walking with disciples along the beach, he left no footprints. Now, that would kill a lot of sales, wouldn't it, in the bookstores with those little prints? That, I mean, <laughs> because they already had a predetermined idea that Jesus, if Jesus was good, Jesus couldn't have a body. It's interesting that that was actually the prevalent view of this non-Christian but counterfeit Christian teaching for the first 200 years from the time that Jesus was born. To me, that's a pretty good indication that Jesus is, they didn't question his deity, they questioned his humanity. He wasn't actually a person, it was uh, a physical human being. To me, that's a pretty good indication that we might take seriously his, his deity. They didn't even question it in his day in the closest days to him. But in our day, it's reversed. In our day, very few people really question the historicity of Jesus, that Jesus was a man who was born, who lived, who taught, even who performed tremendous miracles. But there is a widespread denial of the fact that Jesus is God who has come in the flesh. There is a denial of his deity. John is very clear here, and he says the barometer of what is true is anyone who declares Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. That's a direct confrontation to the people in his day and to our day, because Jesus Christ come in the flesh is saying that he is fully man and fully God. Now, two things we need to acknowledge when we consider what John is saying here. One is he writes, who confess. He's not simply saying anybody who verbalizes it, who expresses it, or even who just 
understands and agrees with that statement. Jesus' brother James would have something to say about that. and says Satan believes that Jesus came in the flesh. He doesn't seem too, all the too happy about it. It doesn't do him any good. He still stands condemned. What John is talking about as a confession is an understanding, an appreciation, an acceptance, a resting in that when we express it, it is expressing not just a theological position, but the very hope of our lives. That's the implication when John says anyone who is proclaiming, anyone who is declaring that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is coming from God. Anyone who denies that Christ came in the flesh is not from God. Now, the second thing is not only just in confession, but it's the whole nature of, of Christ, who Scripture teaches had two distinct natures. Theological term is the hypostatic union. Try to work that into your conversations this week. People will be impressed. They won't talk to you anymore, but they'll be impressed. But hypostatic union simply means two natures that are together. As the Scripture teaches in our, uh, is that he was fully man, he was fully God, he was not a mixture. It's not like putting him in a blender like you're making a smoothie. But whatever, the, way I, the simplest way that I can to explain this is whatever it means to be deity, whatever it means to be God, Jesus was that in every way. Whatever it means to be human, Jesus was that in every way. And he was both at the same time, not only was, but continues to be. John is saying anyone who is declaring that is coming from God. But there's also more that we need to understand of what John is saying, because John, when he's talking about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, he's also making a shorthand reference to the gospel. I mean, the question needs to be, it's not just a matter of somebody said, okay, I believe Jesus came in the flesh, and Jesus is man, and Jesus is God, and then talking about other things. John is saying that anyone who is confessing, anyone who is declaring, in one sense he's saying who's declaring the gospel, we need to ask ourselves, why did Jesus come in the flesh, and what is it that Jesus accomplished? John has both of those questions in mind as he's writing this. We can't take this out of context from anything else he's saying. Because you have some who will acknowledge doctrinally that Jesus is God and man. And they may very well be Christians, but what they're teaching is not from God. When they move off of that and begin to teach whatever their own philosophies are. John is saying that the one who is proclaiming to you the gospel, Jesus Christ, just the name itself, it's a, it's a redundant declaration of Jesus' purpose. Jesus himself said that he came to lay his life down. Jesus says, I give my life as a ransom for sinners. It's a clear explanation that Jesus didn't come simply to be a model of how to live or to give us instructions on how life can be better now. He came to save us from something that we couldn't save ourselves from. His name Jesus comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, Joshua, which means he saves his people. Christ is reflection of Messiah, who was the promised deliverer of the people who were in bondage and couldn't get out of it on their own. And John is making clear that when we are declaring Christ, the Christ test requires not only that we believe doctrinally that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God, both together at the same time, whether we can comprehend that or not, but we also have to properly declare why he came in order to deliver us, to free us, to lay his life down in our place as our substitute to pay for our sin in 
anyone who is not declaring that, anyone who is simply declaring, see how Jesus lived, listen to what Jesus talked, now go do the same, and then you will live a better life, they're not teaching from God. There's a second test, too, and we call it the Bible test. That may not be as clear at first as the Christ test. John says for the Christ test, anyone who declares that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The Bible test is more implied, but nevertheless clear that you'll see here in a moment. If you look at verse 6, whoever says, uh, excuse me, probably be best if I read from the right chapter, wouldn't it? Anyway, I'm sure it's a good word. It just has nothing to do with what I'm talking about right now. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I'm calling this the Bible test because John is laying out an important truth here. What he's doing in this letter and what he's doing here in this particular passage, you see a lot of references to you, they, we, the you is you, the you is the believers that John is writing to, the recipients of this letter. The they are the false teachers and those who have been, uh, been um, have, have, have followed the false teachers, but primarily the false teachers. And the us that he's talking about here is the apostles. The apostolic teaching, the people that God had raised up, called and endowed with a unique calling on their lives and, and the spiritual presence to speak with the authority, direct revelation from God. They were uniquely endowed with it. Others were not, and they are not today. But the scriptures, as John is talking about here, is they listen to us, whoever the apostles were. Those who were of God, they listened to us, the apostles, who were showing and teaching how all of the Old Testament pointed to Christ and reflected Christ, and how we take all of the body of knowledge that we have and then apply it to our daily lives in the letters that they were writing to the churches as they were speaking and teaching. And all of that has been recorded for us in God's Word. So I take that as a shorthand and saying, John is saying if you listen to the apostles' teaching, if you listen to the Word of God, it's a demonstration that you are from God. If you are not listening to what God had to say through these apostles, you are not from God. John Stott makes an interesting observation on John's claim here. John says, look, if you're from God, you listen to me, or to us, to the apostles. And Stott says, whoever knows God listens to us. That would be the height of arrogance if John was speaking as an individual. John is not speaking as an individual. He's speaking as one who has been called to a unique calling in his life to be whose teachings were joined with the other apostles as a foundation of our understanding of who God is, what God has done for us, and how we are to live. So with that foundation, it's important for us then to ask this question. How are teachers handling the Bible? 
Are they using it as the authoritative source in saying, here's what God is saying. To the best of my ability, I'm trying to expose and explain and then apply what God has said. Or are they using it as a resource rather than a source from which they are free to pull out whatever they want in order to prove the point they are trying to make. There is a significant difference. The one who uses it as a source is acknowledging that God has spoken. It's important that we understand what God is saying and then we respond to what God has said. The one who is using it as a resource is saying, I have knowledge I have wisdom, and God has said some good stuff. Some would even deny that it comes from God at all, but there have been people who have said good stuff. And then they kind of pick and choose, often taking things out of their context in order to make whatever point that they are trying to make. I think it's reasonable to assume that when John says, people who listen to us, He's implying that that means in the context of what they're trying to teach. You can't just take certain words and say, this is what he meant. He had clear intention. All the writers of the scripture had clear intent in what they were writing. And Jesus himself declared that all of their intent was to point people to him. But we are inundated in our culture with people who will use the name of Christ. But Christ is not the object being pointed to. Christ is a means to get you what you want. They're not using the scriptures to show you what God says. They're using the scriptures to tell you what you want to hear. And we're buying it. And we're buying their books. And the church is becoming impotent. John's given us these two tests that we need to be applying to anyone who teaches. It doesn't mean every statement coming out of somebody's mouth is going to be a full explanation of who Christ is and what he's done. The, the, the apostles use shorthand as well. But the focus of their teaching, the intent of their teaching, the authority from which they get their teaching should be obvious and should be very clear. We apply that in particular, I would say, to two movements. Not only those two, but as you're seeing what's selling and being popular in the books or TV, radio, apply these two tests. One, you would apply it to, I'll call the theological liberal. It wasn't clear enough in the first service. I just meant, I just said liberal, and that also has political connotations I didn't mean to make. The theological liberals who look at the Bible and then tear it apart because they have wisdom greater than what God apparently had, and they determine what is right. You find it in the people who would claim to believe the authority of the Bible, but they really like the stuff that's written in red. I don't know how Jesus spoke in color. When Jesus said, it's all my word, all scripture is God-breathed. People who feel that they can 
test what God says to see whether it measures up to popular psychology, contemporary political thought, American and Western values, as opposed to saying, this is the word of the King of Kings, the God who created all things. And then there is the word of faith movement, the positive thinking, the heaven now, your best now, life now. Who believes that your problem is you just have bad examples. You just have not let God who is in everyone out. But if you look at Jesus, you'll know how to live. You don't need a savior. You need a big brother to give you good advice. It is garbage. It is poison. It is not Christian. Period. And even with that, you don't know how I feel. Only if you let me cuss would you get an idea. <laughs> and it's killing us. God loves us and gave us the warning from the apostle. Don't believe everything that you hear. Test it. And it's a simple test. And he makes the promise that we will overcome. The evidence of John, as he writes to the people who overcome, is this. You didn't leave. You're hungering for what I have to say. You're waiting for my letter. You who are hungering for God's word, you have overcome. But not only is there an indication of what is reality, there's a promise. Because it does no good to overcome only to fail later. There is a promise that as we continually test and we continually trust only that which essentially passes the test. I'm not talking about doctrinal differences of faithful people. There's a lot of room in these tests for different theological camps within the Christian church. You will overcome. Now, what does it mean to overcome? I think the best illustration I've heard of this I was, seemed a little odd at first, but somebody was talking about submarines. Some of you certainly would know more than I do. I don't know a whole lot other than what I've read. Some of you probably were submariners in your military service or marine biology, whatever. But from what I understand, if you look at any submarine, particularly those that go way down deep, they are very thick steel walls on those subs. And the reason that they are thick steel walls is because when they go miles and miles down, the pressure from the water is so great that if they were not thick enough that the submarine would collapse much like a, an aluminum Coke can would under your foot. These submarines are, are thick and they go down and those who particularly, they're not the, uh, the ones for the military but are going for study of what's down deep, they've shown some interesting things down deep. One fish I remember seeing on the, um, on, I guess, National Geographic channel um, soon after I'd read this illustration about submarines 
shows this really weird and ugly looking neon looking fish that has a tentacle coming out of its forehead and then apparently at the end of the forehead there's a little glowing thing that is um, that I guess radiates light for some reason that's uh, it's I don't know if it's a little flashlight kind of like a submarine mariner's helmet or, or whatever that God had created but having just read about the submarines and this thing that a submarine is, has to be so thick in order that it can see I, that my first thought was is that fish made out of steel and the answer is, of course not. Well, how then could a submarine go down deep? It would collapse. It has to be so thick that the pressure would collapse it. But this fish, you could probably squeeze with your finger and collapse. How is it able to sustain itself so deep under the sea? The answer is that God has designed that fish in such a way that the pressure within the fish is always equal to the pressure on the outside of the fish, no matter how deep the fish goes. And therefore, as the fish goes down or the fish comes up, the pressure is always equal, so it doesn't explode and it doesn't implode. In that, there's a beautiful picture for us that we need to understand if we are to not only apply the test, but then stand it all and benefit from the promises of the test. Christ, who came in the flesh, dwells within us who believe by the reality of his Holy Spirit. And that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And the reason that is significant is because so many Christians, realizing the false teachings and everything else in our culture, they are creating steel walls to isolate ourselves from the culture, only to find themselves lonely and frustrated because they're still not any better. Where, when I believe what John is helping us to understand is that that's the wrong principle. The key is not to put up mass, massive walls to protect us from our enemies or from things that would be contrary to God, but to realize that the one who is in us is greater than anything that we're going to, any pressure that we have on the outside of the walls, and that we continually feed ourselves by faithful teaching what God has said throughout, the world, uh, throughout his word that will build us in our faith and strength that uh, the promise is we will overcome, we will endure, there will be no pressure that will collapse us because he is greater than anything in the world. That is the promise to those who endure, those who embrace these tests. It's the promise to you and to me. May we be a people who feed on God's word that our, the spirit within us remains a strong force wherever we are. we would be wise and have the joy that comes to those who do overcome. Let me pray. Father, we do give thanks to you for the word that you have given us. And pray that you would grant us discerning eyes, minds, and hearts. Not that we may condemn, but that we ourselves might feed on what is good and feed those around us in what is good and perhaps rescuing some who are seduced by what is, seems to be near, but ultimately pays nothing. May we be a people who realize that there is no good in having our best life now and gaining the whole world and yet forfeiting our own soul because we rest in ourselves rather than resting in your gift to us in Jesus Christ. May we delight in Christ. 
just as you have sent him. We pray in Christ.